great to see you back. Uh, glad you made it back this week. Uh, as we encouraged you last week to visit other churches, if you did, uh, we would love—is uh, my mic go out here? We would love for you to share with us uh, what you learned from other churches, the great things that happened when you went out there, uh, so we can learn from them. If you'd be willing to share those ideas with us, we'd greatly appreciative. Uh, I want to thank Todd this morning, Todd Downing. And Family who came here today to help lead worship. Thank you, Todd. Uh, Weston and Audrey on vacation. And so Todd helped us out today, which we're greatly appreciative this morning. Didn't they do a great job? We should give them a hand. Thank you, worship team, for your hard work. Uh, it was great experiencing the presence of God this morning. Uh, well, we are in this thing called the Unseries because we recognize in the summer that some of you will be gone. And we don't want it to feel like when you show up, you've missed something. So typically, we allow series to guide our preaching and our teaching, but we felt like over the summer, uh, we would do something that wasn't a series. So if you just showed up this week, uh, you would be on the in. You wouldn't be on the out. So we felt like it was best during summer not to do a series, so we're calling it the best summer unseries. So I'm excited uh, for today. I can't wait to share with you what I've been learning. By the way, this is just a disclaimer. Everything that I share with you today is not mine. I didn't write it. I borrowed it. I'm permanently borrowing it. And now I'm sharing it with you because it has helped me in so many tremendous ways. Would you pray for me this morning before we begin? Lord, we acknowledge your presence this morning. Lord, we recognize this morning that we are marked by your grace and by your love. Regardless of what we think or how we feel or what may be going on in our lives, we are defined by you. So this morning we pray that you'd be in this time of teaching, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would set aside our thoughts and our preconceived notions about scripture and your word and the, the way things have happened. We pray that you would speak something new and fresh in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, is there ever a time in your life where you have felt powerless? Is there a time in your life where you have felt powerless? Maybe you've had an addiction, or maybe you've had a physical ailment that left you at a place where you couldn't do anything and you felt powerless. Maybe your inability to parent well makes you feel powerless at times. Let's take it a step further. Maybe you have somebody in your life who has more power, more authority, and more money than you. And every time you're around them, you feel like they have something over you that you are most powerless in their presence. And you know that any minute they could hurt you. Maybe you've had a boss ask you to do something, ask you to do something that you didn't want to do. And you recognize that if you didn't do what they're asking you to do, you'd be fired. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, I've got a family to feed. I've got little kids. And if I don't make money, I won't be able to feed them. Not only that, I won't be able to afford the house that puts a roof over the head and keeps them safe. Have you ever been in that situation where you have felt powerless by somebody else? Maybe you have, maybe somebody's taken something from you. Maybe you've worked hard for your life to provide for your family. Maybe you've purchased a home or maybe you've purchased a car, something that you worked extremely hard for. Only to find out that maybe you had a, a medical circumstance or something come up where you couldn't afford the payment and you lost your home. And all of a sudden people are showing up at your door saying we're going to take this very thing that you worked so hard for. We're going to take it as our own. 
Anybody have experienced that before? Anybody experienced this sense of powerlessness in life? You know, it, it's ironic because all of us at some point in our lives are going to experience this powerlessness. And I think at times it feels like our faith doesn't give us an edge in terms of somebody who has power over us. You see, we have been taught as Christians that we take a posture of passivity and that kind of takes a whole nother level where we do nothing and we become powerless in a situation. In other words, sometimes I feel like our faith, our Christian faith, makes us cowardly. Anybody else resonate with what I'm saying this morning? There are times where people have done things to you where you feel like you can't respond at all and you feel like the Christian response is a coward response. This morning we're going to look at a few statements Jesus makes. And I want you to understand that instead of operating out of a cowardness, Jesus invites us to a different kind of courage this morning. A different way of thinking this morning. And so this morning we'll begin with this first line. Many of you are familiar with this line. In fact, we often say it, uh, and it starts like this. It goes, turn the other cheek, right? You remember Jesus said this. He said, if somebody hits you on your cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. Give them your other cheek. Now, I love this. In the ancient days, they had two hands. Believe it or not, they had two hands back then. They had a right hand and a left hand, kind of like we do now, you know. Uh, but what was different about then is that the right hand in the ancient day was used for uh, uh, deal making, so shaking hands. It was used for work. It was also used to hit somebody. And so your right hand was a sign of power and dominance and authority. That's what your right hand. Everybody say that. Power, dominance, and authority. That's what your right hand does. Now your left hand in the ancient day was used for grooming your personal orifices. So your nose, your ears, and everything else in between. You'll get that joke in a minute. <laughs> That's what the left hand was for. And so you would never actually use your left hand in culture and society. You were always using your right hand when you were interacting with others. And so when you would hit somebody, you would use your right hand. Now what's really cool is in the ancient days, they had two ways of hitting people. I hope you are taking notes because this is important. This is really good stuff. They had two ways of hitting people. The first one is everybody hold up your right hand and make a fist. They would make a fist and then you would punch somebody with the fist. Now, the other way that you would hit somebody in the first century is you would slap somebody with the back of your hand. Now, let me help you understand. If I were to punch you with a fist... This was a sign that we were equal, that we were on the same field, we were on the same level, we were on the same structure in terms of money and power and authority. And so if I hit you with my right hand, this was an acknowledgement that you are equal to me. Now back in the day, unlike today, they had masters and slaves and they had women and men. They had a whole level of power. They even had children, and they were just kind of utilitarian. They just work on the farm. They're just kids, which is really sad, a sad view. But in their day, if you were to hit somebody with the back of your hand, this was a sign that you are below me, that I am better than you, that I have more money than you, that 
that you can't stand up to the kind of person that I am. You can't be who I am in this moment. And so oftentimes, people, people who were servants or slaves were slapped with the back of the hand. Now, I need you to stand up. We're, we're going to get crazy just for a minute. We need, we need to act this out because we can't understand what Jesus is saying. Yeah, if you can't stand up, just find a partner, look at somebody. Here's what we're going to do. I need you to look at the person. Need a new mic? Yeah? No? Yeah? I think we're good. Cheers. Okay, here we go. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to look at your partner, and I need one of you to say, I am the aggressor, and the other say, I am the servant. I am the aggressor, and I am the servant. All right? Now, think about this. I want you to face your partner. Whoever is the aggressor, I want you to make a right fist. Right? You've got your right fist. Now, try. Now, don't actually do this, but think about the, the oddness of this, of you trying to connect your right fist with their right cheek. Not their left, their right. Now, how odd is that? You trying to punch their right. You're going to have to get on the other side of them. You're going to have to, like hook your hand and make it all funny. It's going to be really weird, right? But if you were to take your right hand and open it up like you're going to slap somebody on the right cheek, whoo, it becomes really easy, doesn't it? Now think about this. Somebody got hurt. Now listen to what Jesus says in the, in the text. He says, if, if, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other. Now, I want you, if, if the aggressor, the, well, the person that is the servant, I want you to turn your left cheek to the person. Turn your left cheek to them. And the person who is the oppressor, the aggressor, I want you to now try to slap them with your right hand. You can't. Right? It's, it's weird. It doesn't feel right. But if you make a what? A fist, you can now clock them. All right, have a seat real quick. Now you're saying, Pastor, why did we do that? Listen. Yes, thank you for the question. You're so inquisitive today. When you turn the other cheek, when you are giving their left cheek, essentially what you are saying to them is, hit me now as an equal. So I want you to envision with me, I want you to envision with me a courtyard. Or maybe a field where there are a bunch of servants and a, a bunch of maidservants and, and, and family standing around. And a master stands up in front of his servant and he slaps the servant across his face. And the servant turns the left cheek to the, to the master. Now this is a dilemma. Because if the master punches the servant in the left face, what is he saying? You are my equal. But if the master does nothing, the slave has one-upped him. He has lost the power. If he doesn't hit this guy, if he doesn't punch this slave, then he is going to be made a fool, and he no longer has the authority and power over the slave as he once did. Pretty powerful stuff, right? This is like mind-blowing stuff. It's good. So Jesus is on fire. Like, by the way, he's in the middle of one of the most important sermons that he ever preached. He's in the middle of it. He's on fire, dude. He's lighting it up. It's hellfire and brimstone, except a lot of great examples, not just hellfire and brimstone. 
So he goes on in the passage, and he goes on to say this. If somebody, if somebody sues you for your shirt, give them your coat. Now that doesn't make sense to us because our shirts are usually worn underneath our coats. Now what would make sense in this day is that on the outer garment would be the cloak and the under would be the tunic. The tunic was the garment that you wore close to your, to your body. And you're asking, why would Jesus say this? Somebody said, why would Jesus say this? I'm so glad you asked today. You see, during this time, the Romans had found their way into this country, the Israelites' country, and they were oppressing them. They always had their boot on the Israelites' neck. Imagine someone invading your country, invading your home, and every day when you looked out, there were soldiers in front of your house, and it was a reminder that you are under the power of somebody else. You worked hard for this life. You've worked hard for your farm. You, you've, you've done everything right in life. And in comes this other country, and they start charging you taxes. So, so the Jews experienced this one, this one thing called triple taxation. Now, I know I'm maybe losing you, but hang with me because this is important. In their time, they had temple tax. And temple tax went to help the poor and the needy. But there were these wonderful religious people called the Sadducees who decided that they would hoard all the money and they would make themselves wealthy. In fact, they're digging up sites around Jerusalem and they found a Sadducees home and in it was a $5,000 bottle of wine. Could you imagine $5,000 bottle of wine? So they're taking the money that's meant to help the poor and they're using it for themselves and so the Jews pay taxes there. And then there are the Herodians. This is like the state of Illinois, just another government that charges you taxes. So they would pay taxes to the Herodians. And then there was Rome on top of this who would come in and they would charge you taxes. Now, listen to this. It was estimated that Jews were paying up to 85 or 90% of their income in taxes. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody took 90% of your wages, would you have a car? Would you have a house? Would you have food? What would you have? Nothing. So what happened during this triple taxation is, is the Jews began to experience a spiraling debt that they couldn't get out of. So here's what would happen. They couldn't afford the farms because they were paying so many taxes. So I'll call it a corporation. A corporation would come in. They would buy the farms from the Jews to get them out of debt. And then the Jews would actually go in more debt in order to pay the people that got them out of debt. I know it's completely different today. We don't understand that. But that's what happened. So it's this downward spiral of debt, and it's absolutely embarrassing. What would happen is the people who, who wanted their money back would start suing people for all their stuff. Remember, we're talking about cloak and tunic. Would start suing people. They'd start with your animals. Then they'd take your land. Then they'd take your house. They may even take your family. And if somebody was really ruthless, if somebody was extremely mean and just dehumanizing, they would actually sue you for your cloak. Now let's think about this. Jesus says, if somebody sues you for your cloak, give them your tunic also. What is Jesus saying? Get in your birthday suit. I mean, he's saying in this moment, I need you to strip down and get naked in front of everybody. Now we won't get this. But see, nudity in the first century 
Nudity for people in the first century did not bring shame on the person that was naked. It brought shame upon the people who viewed their nakedness. Oh, so now we're, now we're, we're getting somewhere, right? So Jesus says, I need you to strip down. I need you to, to because what's going to happen is they're going to take you to the front gate. There's going to be a bunch of people standing around. We're going to have this, this time, this court scene where we're going to take all your stuff and your oppressor's there and he's suing you for your cloak. And Jesus says, before they even do that, just strip down. And what happens is in that moment, power is no longer belongs to the person who is suing because when you take off your clothes, they in their right mind would never want to be in shame upon their own family. If they were to see you naked in that moment, it would bring them shame. And they would say, yeah, I don't want that. Okay, you know what, you can just snap right there. I've got what I've got, let's, let's just continue on like this never happened. Jesus doesn't stop there. He says... If someone asks you to go a mile, go another mile. Again, context, the Jews or the Jews are facing oppression. The Romans are, are in their country and they're constantly hurting them and making them do things that are so demeaning. And so I love this because there was a Roman military law that said if if a soldier asks you to carry his pack, you can only carry it, only carry it for one mile, just one. So imagine you're on your way to the synagogue, imagine you're on the way to the park with the kids or you're taking them to school, and a soldier walks up to you and says, carry my pack, please. So now you got to find somebody to take the kids with Aunt Bessie or whoever it is, you got to leave them with somebody, and now you have to put this pack on your back and carry it carry it for this soldier for a mile. By the way, what carried packs back then? Donkeys, mules, horses, in other words, animals. So this was the way of, of Roman life essentially saying to these people, you're nothing but animals to us. You don't even belong in the same social class as us. You are animals. And so what would happen is the soldier would follow behind you while you're carrying your pack and you get this vision of like horses carrying a carriage or something. Now, the Romans didn't mess around when it came to laws. By the way, they really fine-tuned crucifixion. Like, they knew what they were doing, and they didn't mess around. You broke the law, you're done. That really goes for soldiers, too. So the rule was you can only go one mile. Now, Jesus says, keep going. When you get to the mile, just keep going. And we use this phrase like, oh, yeah, Sally, she made, she made two dishes for the barbecue cookout. She went the extra mile. Like, we think it's a way of saying somebody's rudy or they're awesome or they're just amazing. But what Jesus is saying, go the extra mile in this minute. And all of a sudden, you flip the switch again. Because if a superior sees this soldier making you walk an extra mile, guess who's in danger? Not you. The soldier is. And so he's begging you and pleading you, please stop with the pack. Don't go any farther. Just stop right there in this moment. I don't want to get in trouble. And do you see what you've done? You have totally, totally flipped the script on power. So what is the, with the cheek, the tunic, and the mile? What is it with those things? You see, often in life we are dealt with situations. As I said, we may feel powerless at times. But we are dealt with things in life and we do two things. One, we don't respond at all. 
we do nothing. And when you do nothing, you resign to despair. And when you find yourself in despair, you are essentially powerless. So you do nothing. Or you could do something. Now, in our world, when we do something, it's, awfully, it's often equal or reciprocal to what has been done to you. So you spread rumors about me, guess what? Thunder and lightning are coming out. I'm bringing the heat. I'm going to spread gossip and lies about you. You hurt my spouse, I'm going to hurt your spouse. And so we get this whole tension of repaying evil with evil, of, of replying to hate with hate, and that's how often we respond in life. But then there's this, this, this thing when you're a Christian where it's like we recognize we can't do those things. And Jesus in this moment is brilliant. Because what he is saying is, I'm not asking you to be a coward. I'm asking you to embody courage in this moment. And we call it third way thinking. The mile, the cheek, the tunic. This is third way thinking about how we do life. I like how Paul says it. He says, put on the mind of Christ. You see, I get we face situations in life where immediately we want to respond. We want to come back with something. We want to make sure that they get what is theirs. They get what's coming to them. And, and when we put on the mind of Christ, it actually takes something more inside of us than just responding and retaliating, but actually taking a minute to say, how am I going to work through this situation? And what we're introducing is this idea of third way thinking. You see, we live in a dualism kind of society. In other words, we see things as right and wrong, black and white, Republican or Democrat, right? We, 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 we see things as one or the other, but we can never actually be in between. Because if we do, we run the danger of not really being on one side or the other. And what Jesus is saying, it says, you aren't on a side, you are taking the third way, which won't make sense to anybody. But when you do it, you will be standing up in those moments. So third way thinking does a few things. One, it, it, it deals with power. When you turn the other cheek and ask somebody to hit you as an equal, you have totally subverted the power systems and structures of the world. When you strip down to your tunic or take it off, what happens is in that moment is the one who is oppressing you by an oppressive power is now taken on a different kind of posture of power, which is begging you to please stop. It actually is good. Right now they're using the power for good because they're restoring your humanity and your dignity. When we go the extra mile, we are acknowledging that people are better than me. People are better than we are all equal in the eyes of Christ. So we deal with power. The other thing that this does, the other thing that third way thinking does is it gives us um, courage. We've already said this. You see, it doesn't take courage. It doesn't take spiritual maturity. It doesn't take somebody with the mind of Christ to respond whatever we feel like saying. It takes courage. It takes power, it takes strength to withhold the very things that are in our soul 
and, and, and rethink through them and process those things. It takes courage to do that. It takes spiritual maturity. It takes the mind of Christ to do those things. The other thing that third way thinking does is it is a refusal. It is a refusal to accept somebody dehumanizing you. In the moment that you take on third way thinking, you are essentially saying to everybody else, God has created me in a divine image that he has called good and you will not destroy what he has called good. I was created with beauty and love and goodness. And your attempt to destroy what he has made is a refusal when I start thinking in a third way. It takes creativity. It takes creativity. Third way thinking doesn't happen overnight. Thinking like Christ doesn't happen when we wake up the next morning. It takes time. It takes practice. It takes thought. And there are going to be times when you're in a situation, you'll go back and you'll say, oh, I wish I, I, wish I would have said that. Or I wish I would have responded this way. And you don't. That's okay. It's practice. But the, the point is you're going back and you're rehashing what you could have done. Yesterday, for example, I was going to pick up Janelle and the dreaded state up north, northeast of us. It starts with the M word. I won't say it. Um... But I went to go pick up Janelle, and there was traffic literally the whole way from my house to New Buffalo. And it was frustrating. What should have taken an hour and 20 minutes took me three hours, two and a half hours or three hours. And I was so frustrated. And so I'm sitting here in traffic, not moving anywhere, thinking about why who, whoever decided to do construction on the 4th of July and close off lanes when people are trying to get on with it. And then I thought, I'm preaching on third-way thinking. What is third-way thinking in this moment? Because I want to scream and say things I shouldn't, and I want to yell, and I want to cut off people. And, and what is third-way thinking? And I thought, just, it took me quite some time. Good thing I had three hours. I thought to myself, what if a traffic jam is God's way of making us slow down to hear his voice? What if a traffic jam is a moment where God wants us to be present with him? Now, I will say this. That was a fleeting thought, and I went back to my other thoughts of anger and rage and hatred, and that was just a fleeting thought. <laughs> I'd already prayed in the morning. I was good for the day. Totally kidding. But it takes practice. It takes creativity. The last thing that third-way thinking does is it produces change in other people. Do you notice at the end of every story, at the end of the cheek story, at the end of the tunic, at the end of the mile, what we do when we do third-way thinking is we give an opportunity for the ones who make life miserable for us to have a change of heart. To say, you know what? You have helped me understand that this is not how life works. And for that, I am sorry. By the way, change is the same word for repent. Right? When we do third way thinking, when we start responding with the mind of Christ, this gives people the opportunity for forgiveness and repentance and restoration and change and love. I know we've covered a lot today, but when I heard this, 
I was so excited. And I'll tell you right now, I have not figured it out. It takes a lot of creativity, and I'm not that creative. But I want to challenge you today. Each of you face something in your life that makes you feel powerless. Each of you has something in your life that makes you angry. For some of you, you've, you've not figured out how to respond. And I want to challenge you today, today to think in the third way. I want to challenge you today to think in the third way. And you're saying, well, what does that look like? I don't know. I don't have to give you answers. The beauty of the Christian life is you figuring it out. But before you spout off to your boss, before you think your parenting is awful, before you, you, you think that you have no power in a situation where you feel powerless, tune into God for just a minute and let him change the way you think about life. That's my hope for you this morning. That's my hope. Third way thinking. Thank you for the person who gave that to me. It was very good. And I'm hoping you're enjoying it this morning. Well, what we do every week as a response to God's message, God is speaking to each of us, and every week we respond by coming to the table. Interesting, uh, the, the church, our global church, had this thing called uh, an assembly. I never understood why they make all the policies when everybody leaves. Uh, I find that funny, like, Everybody leaves town, and that's when they do all the business. They actually should do the business when people have a voice and a chance. But one of the things I, I can appreciate about our church is that they change the language when it comes to how we do communion. You see, often we view communion as a memorial, and the beauty of what our church has recognized is that the presence of Christ is in the element. He is in the table. He is in this moment. So when we come to the table, hear me now, because this is important. It's not just communion. When you respond to the message, God's word to you, when you come up and you eat from the table, you are receiving Christ, which is confession, which is repentance, which is belief. Am, am, I, am I being clear this morning? I'm trying, I'm trying to be clear about why we do this every week. Every week we receive, because when you eat from this table, you eat what you are. So if you want a third way thinking, if you want something new about how to do life, find yourself at the table this morning. I'm going to invite Todd and the worship team to come up this morning. For those of you serving communion, if you'd make your way up here. Let me pray for us. Lord, we acknowledge your presence in this moment. We acknowledge that, that you are here with us. And we acknowledge that gathering this morning in this beautiful space, without your word and the table, this is not a Christian environment. Without those things, this can't be Christian. And so we, we take this next moment to, to receive the word that you've given us, to come up and receive the grace and mercy that you want to give us. Lord, we acknowledge that through this time, sitting at your feet, sitting at the table, your love that was poured out on the cross 
is now being poured out into us. So we open our hands and we receive your grace. We let it pour over our lives. We let it infiltrate our hardened hearts. And we let us move us into the world as an image of something new and exciting and something different from what the world knows. Lord, transform us in this moment by your body, by your blood, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, your 